Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Graham Pekefli, Chief Financial Officer at Unilever. Graham joined Unilever in 2002 and was previously Executive Vice President and General Manager of the Unilever UK and Ireland business. Prior to that, he held a number of senior financial and commercial roles within Unilever, including Senior Vice President of Finance for Global Markets, Global Head of M&A, Head of Treasury, Pensions, and Tax, and Chief Financial Officer of Unilever Indonesia. Graham brings considerable internal and external experience to the role, having spent the earlier part of his career in senior corporate finance roles in the telecommunications industry and at PwC. Now, I was very excited for this one because Unilever has emerged as a real leader in terms of doing well by doing good, and also in terms of pushing forward the climate and sustainability agenda. It just so happens that Unilever has a bit of scale to them as well, in that every day, two and a half billion people use Unilever products. We have a great discussion in this episode about Unilever's climate journey, how and when and why they became so deeply intertwined in their culture with doing well by doing good. We also talk about some of the commitments that they've made around climate, circular economy, and sustainability. We talk about where they are in their journey, some of their blind spots, what they've done in-house, what they've looked outside for, what things they wish someone else would go and do that would help facilitate them moving faster. We also just talk about some of the common sources of debate in the climate journey and transition and what Graham thinks about them, such as offsets and negative emissions and quality, transparency, additionality, we talk about different materials and different solution types and the debates that occur and how Unilever goes about making those decisions and what criteria they use. 
the role of top-down decision-making versus bottom-up, as well as the role of global rollouts versus autonomy in different regions and product lines. And we also talk about how to get other brands on board and the role of voluntary commitments versus government and policy and mandates and regulation. At any rate, this is a long, wonderful, highly informative discussion, and I'm really excited for you to listen to it. Graham, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I can't tell you what a big honor this is. And I guess my first question is just what the heck is the CFO of a gigantic company like Unilever coming on this little dinky climate show? Well, you know, <laughs> good question. I mean, I, at the end of the day, we, as Unilever, you know, are deeply engaged in the subject. You know, the goal of the company is to be one of the world's leading sustainable businesses. And by setting that sustainable business platform, it means that our brands can communicate their purpose to our consumers. And at the end of the day, we're a company of brands and people. And really, the people who, who use our brands, our consumers are super precious to us. That integrated strategy we've got around having a business that's sustainable and doing business the right way and doing it through a multi-stakeholder lens is really important to us. We are out there a lot talking about it. We've been doing that, frankly, ever since the company was founded, but we've really accelerated it over the last 10 or 12 years. And we believe that just engage and, and the power of collaboration and discussion and, uh, and, you know, these are complicated subjects and, you know, lots of opinion around the subject. We believe that putting it out there and engaging in, in as many ways as we can is really helpful for actually for system change because it's all about, you know, getting the subject out there and everybody engaging with it. There's no single company or person or you know, podcast or government or NGO or anything can can tackle this problem alone. So, you know, that's why we, if we get the chance, we're, we're happy to talk for sure. Well, I'm thrilled about it, especially because, you know, the head of sustainability is a very important perspective and it's one that, that we absolutely want to get. But at the end of the day, a lot of this is math, it's accounting, and it's kind of hard decisions and trade-offs to, to take the long view, but not not sacrifice the short term so that the company can keep putting one foot in front of the other and get to where it needs to go. And so the CFO is actually such an important perspective. So the fact that you're taking the time as the CFO of Unilever to come on a climate show, I think is really telling. So there's so many things I want to talk about, but I just wanted to start by saying that, yeah, thank you for, for making the time to do this. Oh, listen, my, my pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. Yeah. So maybe for starters, just, I mean, obviously, I'm sure listeners know Unilever, but talk a little bit about, about the company, the reach, the footprint, but also where, where this kind of cultural element to, you know, to do good while doing well or to do well by doing good. Like, where did that come from in the company? Yeah. You know, let me just pick up on, on what you said at the end there. Our whole strategy is very much the latter. We want to have a more sustainable business. And think about our business in a certain way, Jason, because we believe we'll have a more successful business that way. So, you know, for me as the CFO, I mean, one of the questions I'm asked all the time is, you know, isn't there a conflict between, you know, thinking about carbon and thinking about plastic and thinking about social justice and equity and livelihoods and all of that stuff? You know, doesn't that just cost more money within your business? And, you know, therefore, you're a less valuable company. It's actually the opposite. We, we believe really passionately, and I do as a CFO, that this is a winning business model. Now, it particularly applies for us as a company that's got brands. We've got 400 brands around the world, give or take. 
you know, we sell all our products in 190 countries and we have a pretty massive global footprint. I mean, on any given day, two and a half billion people will use a Unilever product. That sounds like a lot, but I'm wondering what the hell the other four and a half billion are doing, you know, who aren't using a Unilever product. But it is fundamental to our company. I mean, the whole idea, and I don't think it was ever called multi-stakeholder or anything like that in those days. But if you go back to the formation... But it's like double bottom line, triple bottom line. Exactly. (laughs) Before you get into the kind of alphabet soup (laughs) of well-intended initiatives, all of which have got a four-letter acronym, the founders of our company 100-odd years ago, this is how they thought. You know, they were... They were, you know, sort of people who thought about their workforce and thought about their extended supply chain and thought about bringing, you know, hygiene and joy and giving back time to ordinary people's lives. And we're kind of like that. We're a company that kind of makes everyday products for everyday people. But that's a really powerful position. So what happened is, you know, that sort of got galvanized about 10 years ago now into what we call the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And there we got pretty explicit. But, you know, Jason, what that was, was it was a separate set of goals to the financial and value goals of the company. And over the course of the 10 years, we've integrated them. And now we've created a completely integrated document. So our strategy is called the Unilever Compass. And it is a totally integrated strategy of what we want to do in how we operate our business in areas like plastic, in areas like carbon, in areas like water, et cetera, et cetera. But it's totally integrated to the the value creation goals we've got for the company. And quite simply, we our vision, and this is just our, you know, something we crafted but it's quite galvanizing for the whole business is, you know, we're going to create one of the world's leading sustainable businesses. And by doing that, we're going to demonstrate that we can deliver financial performance that's in the top third of our peer set. So it's that's a much harder goal, by the way, than just doing good. Proving that by doing good, you create more value and you become a more successful business, that's a much more stretching goal. And that's what's really motivating for all of us. And the reason we believe that, as I said earlier, is that Unilever is a big company. I mean, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. But at the end of the day, in the context of the global economy, it's peanuts. And so you've got to show that this is a way of thinking about a business that more businesses should do. And then you get systemic change. And then you actually have the impact at scale that you're trying to trigger, you know. So to, to play a little word bingo for a moment. So there's decarbonization. There's sustainability. There's circular economy. There's social justice, equality, right? There's all these different things. Like, are these separate and distinct things? Are they all one? Like, how do you, how does Unilever think about these things and and how much they're interrelated versus distinct? They're all interconnected. And I'll try and explain how they're interconnected in the context of how we think about our business. But I do want to say that you do have to make choices because there are multiple, multiple areas that you could you could play in. It can get more and more granular and you can end up with 100 different targets in 100 different places around 100 different causes, all of which are valid and meaningful and deserve support. But, you know, as a business, you've got to make some choices. In fact, if I look back on our sustainable living plan from 10 years ago, I look at the compass today. One of the things we've done, Jason, is we've been able to massively simplify and reduce the number of areas that we're working on. The broad themes are still the same, but the number of initiatives and targets and goals that we've set for ourselves are much sharper. It's a little bit like the old Mark Twain thing, isn't it? I mean, actually doing the sharp one is much harder than doing the the broader one. And it's it's taken us a lot of 12 years of experience and learning and failure, you know, some successes, some failures in order to get to that position. So it is is a long journey. But let me just 
explain how they come together. So remember, we're a consumer company. So we rely on two and a half billion people using our products every day across our 400 brands. It's really, really important that we appreciate and we know a lot about how, the way that consumers think. And our hypothesis, which is not just a guess, it's based on lots and lots of high quality data and research that we do. I and mean, we understand consumers. That's why we're one of the world's biggest CPG companies. We know that the majority of consumers today who are Gen Z and millennial, and of course, the not just the majority, but an ever-growing number of tomorrow's consumers who are more and more Gen Z, they think clearly about the product they're using and the company that makes that product and how that product is made and what that company stands for. So our, our compass strategy, so our whole philosophy of sustainability, which you're right, does cover things like, you know, water, carbon, plastics, livelihoods, etc. You know, there's five or six pillars to it. But the way to think of them is that they're a foundational construct of Unilever as a sustainable business, as a multi-stakeholder-driven sustainable business. And you need that foundation because then our brands, each of our individual brands, chooses one particular purpose that it believes strongly on and it communicates that to its consumer. Now, if you're, and a lot of companies talk about purpose today and it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a combination of misunderstood and a little bit used and abused sometimes. It's very hard to do purpose well, and it's very hard to do it with integrity so that consumers who are very, very smart and very curious in this area and very demanding in this area, that you can do it in a way that is not disingenuous. So you have to walk the talk and therefore finding the right purpose for a brand, communicating that purpose, actually doing what you say you're going to do has to be on the foundation of a complete business which has a sustainable philosophy. That's our, and it actually is prepared to show up and say what it's going to do, say what it's done successfully, say what's not done successfully, and all of those things. So the, think of the sustainability strategy as foundational. And from that, we can communicate purpose through our brands. And we know that brands with purpose are preferred by an ever-growing group of our consumers, and therefore it makes us very future-proof and more attractive going forwards. And that's the essence of our business strategy. And it seems that in order to improve one's footprint, the first step is measurement. And can you talk a little bit about the state of the state, either within Unilever or just in general out there in the global economy as it relates to measurement of carbon footprints and the things to fulfill these net zero commitments and where it's solid and maybe where some of the gaps are today. Yeah, for sure. It might be worth sharing. You know, I, I was thinking back to when did I personally get interested in the idea of carbon and specifically, but actually extending out to kind of sustainable business. And, you know, for me, I'm a markets person. My background is corporate finance. I love to do deals. I love the capital asset pricing model. I love the efficiency of markets. You'd expect that for somebody who's spent a career as a, as a CFO. And actually, my access point, when I think back to it, was actually around how markets operate, how efficient markets operate. I remember back in, I think it was in 2011, maybe it was 2012. I wasn't the CFO then, but our then CFO gathered a group of the finance function in Unilever to an event in, I think it was in London. 
there was maybe 70 people there, something like that. There was a group that came and spoke to us. I think they were called Carbon Tracker. And they essentially sort of sell-side analysts from the oil and gas industry who had become interested in global warming. And they took data and mathematics and started modeling. What they basically came up with was this concept of unburnable carbon. You know, they looked at the world's oil and gas companies and they basically, and coal companies as well, you know, extractive companies. And they recognized that those companies were being valued based on available reserves. And that if you had bigger reserves, you were a more valuable company because you had more carbon to burn. But they married that data up with, and I can't, I'm going to get the numbers wrong here, but I think they've calculated that the global carbon budget available to keep the planet in, in shape was something like 550 gigatons, if I remember rightly, something like that comes to mind. And that was basically, this is how much carbon you can put out. This is how much has been put out there already. The difference is the budget that you've got left. And they then went down and they just simply went to the published reports, market communication of the world's oil and gas companies. And that came to something, and I'll get the number wrong, but let's say it was 750 gigatons. And they therefore said that, hang on a second, there's a mispricing in the financial system here. Something's not right. Markets are supposed to be the way in which you establish the valuation of something. And if you've got buyers and sellers, then that's how, you know, that's how market works. And I've always been fascinated by that, Jason. But I was fascinated by this idea that the markets were getting it wrong. And they were probably getting it wrong because the timeframes we were talking about were you know, short term in the market size. But if you went longer term, then these companies couldn't be worth what the market was pricing them at because you simply couldn't burn all the reserves that were there. Otherwise, you know, the world would you know, be a vastly different place. So that, that was the moment for me that got me interested in it because, you know, I've always been interested, as I said, in, you know, valuation. How, how does valuation get established? How do you create value in businesses? How do you communicate that value? I mean, one of my big part of my job is talking to our investors, our shareholders, our market commentators, sell-side analysts. And I was a big believer in market communication. You start out in life as an accountant, you, you, you like financial reporting. You know, you, you get interested in how you disclose truly and fairly what the prospects of your business are. And here was this disjoint in the world around, around that. That was the moment where I thought, right, okay, this is really interesting. As a financial person, somebody who likes communication and markets, there's something's gone, is dislocated here. If you roll forward now, so that was, what was that? That was 12, 13 years ago. If you roll forward now, you know, there's an industry of tracking, measuring, reporting, lots and lots of requirements. And honestly, that's where the alphabet soup starts. You know, that's where you get all the various well-intended frameworks in place and really no ability to unify that and make it accessible for companies. So my reaction to that was when I became the CFO of Unilever, I was asked if I wanted to become a a member of the TCFD, you know, very snazzily called Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. But it was really attractive because you had Mark Carney was was very involved in it. Michael Bloomberg was chairing it. You know, Mike's money was behind it. And there were were a really, really interesting group of people getting together to try and do some work on that. And we saw that you could start to unify, you could start to make this whole difficult area more accessible for companies and therefore more accessible by the people who invest in companies and the people who insure companies and the people who finance companies and the people who rate companies, et cetera. Sorry for the long answer, but everything comes back again to having the data and having the consistent, reliable, 
measurable data about the materiality of what's going on with your business so that markets can operate efficiently because it takes the market in order to drive change here. So TCFD was a good example. And, you know, I very much hope that the work that's going on with the IFRS trustees and trying to develop some unified sustainability standards now can happen very quickly because I really think we need, you know, we need some form of accessible standardization there. And where are we now if you look at, you know, scope one, two, and three and blind spots? And I mean, one of the knocks I hear on these commitments is that a lot of these numbers are are self-reported, not with Unilever, but just with everybody. So how dialed in do you feel when you when you look at the, you know, the footprint across the organization and through the, you know, the vendor network and the transportation and things like that? Honestly, Jason, I feel we're in a very comfortable place as Unilever, but it's taken us 10 years of hard work to get there and a lot of investment. I mean, to be honest with you, we're a very well-resourced company. We've got lots and lots of really smart people and we've got plenty of money. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, let's not use the benchmark as Unilever because, you know, this is something that all companies are going to have to engage with. And most companies have not got the resources of the Fortune 500, you know, or the FTSE 100 or or whatever, whatever benchmark. So I'm acutely aware of that. What we show is what's possible. So I know, for example, take scope one, two, and three, you know, the sort of CDP disclosures, which are probably the most advanced set of disclosures, most consistently reported. I know a lot of companies don't report scope three yet. I'm sure they will. You know, if the TCFD disclosures go mandatory, which I think they will in more markets, then we'll require scope three to be disclosed. But all of it is modeled. I mean, you need to make estimations around all of this. And as you pointed out, you need to think about your your supply chain and you need to think about, you know, upstream and downstream impacts, etc. We've got some quite sophisticated and strongly tested and we work with PwC every year to come in and, and give us comfort and attestation around what we're reporting on all aspects of our of our sustainable business plan, including carbon, for example. So I feel quite good about the data that's there, but I don't know whether we've got everything we need in order to deliver what's set out in our climate transition action plan right now. So that for me, we, we published a climate transition action plan about three months ago. There's a really seminal moment because it was a real coming together into an accessible document of what Unilever's plan is for climate transition. And actually, funnily enough, we put it to a shareholder vote and got a 99.59% acceptance of it. And we'll do that every year. We'll update it. There's a, we'll treat it like directors' remuneration gets treated in terms of voting within UK governance, which is a kind of an annual advisory vote and a three-year proper vote. And it would be the same, the US... I guess the US version of that would be the proxy statement. That would be a similar sort of thing. So if you take a look at that climate transition action plan, you're probably looking at a document that's been prepared by a company that you would put in the top decile of companies who've been engaged in this space for a long time and well-resourced. What you'll find there is that there are things we know where we're quite specific, and there are things that we have set a specific goal for, but we're very transparent about the bits we know about how to get there and the bits that we don't know, and then the assumptions we're making that might change in future. And that's quite different from normal reporting, you know, and normal data. You have to be prepared to set out what assumptions you're making, how you think the world will play out, and then how you will adjust that as it inevitably plays out differently. And I think it's an interesting space because, you know, you can't come at this with false precision. We're talking about very long-term effects, much longer than normal financial reporting. And so, you know, having good data, being prepared for that data to be interrogated, 
People will make sure it's relevant data, it's consistent data, making sure that you've got the right things. And importantly, if, if you've got a gap and you don't know how to get there, disclosing that is a really important feature going forwards. But I feel good about it, but I recognize that we're in quite an advanced position and quite privileged with it. I'm much more concerned about how do you make it accessible and raise the floor for all companies in this space rather than sort of raising the ceiling for companies like Unilever and the many other companies who are very interested in this space. So if you look at your extended footprint, I have two separate but related questions. One is what are the hardest aspects of it to decarbonize? What's keeping up with the most at night? And then secondly, and related on the offset side, I read, you know, in that document that, you know, that you believe that it's not either or and that we should be offsetting for the for the stuff that's hard to decarbonize while we're working to get there. And I guess my question there, and these are two separate questions, but for whatever reason I ask things in, in twos, is that there are different approaches. If you're just focused on like saying you're net zero, you might choose one set of offsets. But if you're Stripe, for example, they've said, well, but a lot of those offsets are crap. So we're actually going to pay more so we can ensure that it's higher quality and focus on negative emissions. So one question is, what are the hardest areas to decarbonize? And then the other is, as it relates to those areas and offsetting the difference, how do you think about that quality and consistency? And philosophically, what's Unilever's stance there when it makes its purchases? It's a bit like, you know, green certificates, etc. If you're doing something that isn't actually reducing the amount of carbon that's out there, then you're just pushing the problem around. Or if you're removing future carbon that might have been burnt but wasn't burnt, that is not the same impact as a fundamental reduction. So we think the real tangible action is much more important than offsets. But as you've picked up from reading our CTAP, again, as we map it out, we predict that in order to make the medium-term targets that we've got there, we probably have to use some offsets to plug a gap. And we'll be very careful to make sure that those offsets are, are quality offsets and not just you know claims that are, that are being made, et cetera. So I think we're in that camp of, you know, there's a role for offsets to play because they do make systemic change but you've got to go all out with your own plan and make real reduction. And when you've done all of that, then you can get to your target via offset as a temporary way of getting to where you where you need to get to. So you know, that, that's how we would think about it philosophically. I mean, the areas, just to break down our, our three main action areas on carbon or GHGs, I guess, more widely. The first one is, we need to be really, really clear on the raw materials and ingredients that go into our products. And we need to be able to map across the what is the carbon content of that so that we can look at every single product we sell and build roadmaps of reduction at the level of the products that we're innovating, releasing to the market and manufacturing. So that's a really important piece of work. There's a secondary piece of work around that which is super interesting, but back to the point I was talking about earlier around consumer preference and how important it is to, to be able to demonstrate this to consumers so that they prefer your products. We would love to be able to find a way of communicating that in the form of on-shelf or on-screen, you know, however you're shopping for your grocery product, so that the carbon content of it is available to people. Now, that's obviously very ambitious, but we are doing some work on that right now, and I think it would be very cool to, to see that to fruition. We'll have to work with a number of partners and, and peer companies in order to achieve that. But I think consumers are going to want it. 
a little bit the same, but it was very hard to do it, by the way, around, you know, calorie content and fat content and salt content in the in food products. So, you know, we're not underestimating how difficult this is, but it does start with that. So that's the first one anyway. What You know, how much carbon is in your products? What's your roadmap? The second one that's going to be big for us is reducing emissions from logistics and distribution. You know, most of our products contain water. They're quite heavy. You know, the distribution footprint of getting you, we manufacture quite Graham, a I'm sorry to interrupt, but are we talking about where the fruit is the ripest in terms of the areas you think you can have impact the quickest, or are we talking about the things that are going to be hardest to decarbonize? I'm going to get to the hardest. This, okay, this is, no, keep going. I just wanted to make sure I had the right context. I want to structure on, you know, what, what are the main levers we've got? So you, you've got the distribution part, it's kind of obvious. And the third one for us, because we're the world's biggest ice cream business, but we've got 3 million ice cream cabinets like freezers in our network and they typically run it, I think it's minus 18 degrees is the cold chain for ice cream. So if we can make those cabinets green, that has a big impact for Unilever. So they're, they're the main three levers amongst many others, but they're the three ones that I, I think about. The one that's hardest for us, and it's down to your question about scope one, two, and three that we were talking about earlier. I mean, Unilever scope one and scope two carbon footprint is only two or 3% of our total footprint. Scope three for Unilever is about 97%. And the lion's share of that is consumer use, because most of our products, Jason, require you to heat water in order to wash your clothes, heat water to wash your face, run a tap to brush your teeth, heat water to have a shower using our shampoo or our you know, Dove body wash or whatever great product you're using, and heat water in order to make a cup of tea. Boil a kettle. It's the consumer use part where most of the carbon sits for us. And we thought about this a lot. The original sustainable living plan had a very bold ambition, which was to half the full value chain, like full from, you know, from farm, you know, from field all the way to the end consumer use. We wanted to try and half the GHG emissions there on a per consumer use basis. And we found that extremely difficult to do extremely difficult to do because we you know human beings we like having showers and we like the shower to be warm and we like washing our clothes etc etc now we've retained that target i'll come back to in a second but that's the hardest one for us is that end of of scope three for unilever our main targets fall into two camps we've got a medium term target which is to reduce our own emissions so our scope one and scope two just reduce it by 100% by 2030. I don't think that's difficult. I don't think that's difficult for us. The long-term target is a net zero value chain target, which is scope one, two, and three, but it's scope three only up until the point where the product is on the shelf and the consumer takes it. So we are going to go all the way back, Jason, into our agricultural suppliers, our packaging suppliers. We're going all the way from making the product So we pick up all the scope three there. We pick up all the scope one and scope two, obviously. But the point where the consumer has bought the product, that's not on our net zero value chain target. But as I said, we did retain that medium term target, which is to to have that per consumer use. That's the one that's going to be hardest for us because it's most out with our control. What it requires is greening the grid because the electricity that's used or the energy that's used to to heat that water has to come with a zero carbon footprint in order for us to achieve that. Uh huh. And I mean, a lot of what you've done and are planning to do is coming from a place of you believe that you can do better financially by doing good, which is great. 
but it's voluntary. And there's many people that are quite skeptical that voluntary can ever play a meaningful role at scale, that there just aren't that many Unilevers out there. So again, I'll ask things in twos. One question is, how do we get more companies to think like you? And another follow-up question is, what do we do about the ones that don't and what role does the government have? Well, there's a lot in there. I mean, critically, we're going to have to require the capital markets to be the lever of change here. You know, ultimately, companies that think about the world this way should have more successful business models. That means their cost of capital should be lower, which means their valuation should be higher. Consequently, you know, if you, if you go through the reverse of all that, companies that don't think that way will lose value. And you require the market in order to do that. And obviously, you know, we've seen this incredible uptick in ESG in the investment community. That has to be harnessed positively, and that can drive a lot of change. Although I caveat that by saying, you know, I said earlier, I'm a real markets guy. Like, I really believe in the power of markets. So, but it is happening, and I'm, I'm hugely encouraged by everything that's happening on, in the investment community around this. On the question of voluntary mandatory, I mean, I'll go back to my TCFD experience. We had this debate, the very first TCFD meeting we had, there was a debate, you know, I mean, I'm going to generalize here and probably upset some people, but, you know, the US philosophy to things is a lot more rule-based than the European philosophy, which is a lot more kind of principles-based. There's a kind of form versus substance thing. And we had a kind of transatlantic divide, which said, look, we should just make these mandatory. And there were a few of us who were really advocating very strongly for it to be voluntary because we believed that if you allowed the, the sort of laws of the jungle to play in, then you would get more change. And let me explain what I mean by that. By making them voluntary, we knew that there would be a few leading companies within every sector that would adopt and start disclosing TCFD. And as the financial market and the investment community started to think more about it, they would start asking guys like me, CFOs of companies, CEOs of companies, and boards of companies, well, hang on, this company is telling me that they're in a better position than you because they're thinking about their carbon footprint, their plastic footprint, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're disclosing more. Or if you're an energy company, they've got a better transition plan than you've got. They seem to be further on with their green energy strategy. They're thinking about, you know, coal and oil and nuclear and copper in a, in a different way. Maybe that's a more valuable company. When those discussions take place within sectors, the law of the jungle kicks in and those companies start to be valued better because their governance is better. They're thinking about risk and opportunity with the longer term time frame. And those companies that don't engage to the last part of your question about those that don't, those that don't get marginalized and ostracized. So that can only happen if you allow voluntary to build a scale behind it. TCSD is interesting, though, because having started voluntary, I, I've changed my opinion. I now believe the time is right for mandatory with TCFD. But we have to be careful with mandatory. You can't do mandatory at the level of all companies to the point where the disclosures are so generic that they're boilerplate. There's a certain amount of generic disclosure that's really valuable. So scope one, two, three would be a really good example. And, you know, things like how do you think about it in your strategy? What metrics and targets do you set for it? What's your governance with the board? And is it in management's remuneration? I mean, they're sort of generic questions that everybody could answer. But as soon as you get down to detail, sectors are so different that I believe in sector specificity. And so, yeah, start voluntary, go mandatory at some point, but make sure that you're sector specific and then you really get this law of the jungle thing working in your favor. 
Now, you put an internal price of carbon in place. So I have two questions about that. One is, what did you think about whether the government should put a price of carbon in place before you put that in place? And then how has your thinking evolved, if at all, now that you have that experience? And what are some of the key learnings that you've had so far? Yeah, we always believed in carbon pricing. We believed in cap and trade and all the, all the really interesting efforts that were made in order to try and make systemic change here. We're really happy we did that, by the way, and we always believed in it, but we're really happy that we did it because, and we're really happy now that we have a climate transition action plan. I mean, sometimes I'm asked, doesn't this add a lot of cost to the company? And I say, no, actually it avoids a lot of cost because this is coming and this is going to be priced in. And the best way to reduce the cost and make yourself cheaper is to take the carbon out of your of your system and have done the work in advance. So in that sense, again, back to strategy and valuation and value creation, I believe it's it would be terrible not to do these things because you're facing an enormous unknown scale of cost going forward if you haven't done anything. But it was interesting. We had an interesting run with carbon pricing. So from memory, I think we started at either 40 bucks or, or 50 bucks a few years ago. And we came up with a system, Jason, where basically we, we run ourselves as three divisions. Yeah, We've got a beauty and personal care division. That's about 20 billion euros. We've got a home care division, 10 billion euros. And we have a food and refreshment division, about 20 billion euros, so 50 billion. We can calculate the carbon footprint of all three of those divisions. And we then applied our carbon price to each of the, the divisions, and they were taxed on it. And that gave us the ability to create around about 50 million euros a year of funding that we charged our businesses internally. And that created an internal fund that was used in our supply chain in order to take carbon out of our own operations. And that was the CapEx budget that was used in order to work on how power and water gets supplied in our factories, et cetera, and new forms of distribution and green ice cream cabinets, all of that was funded by them. So it was, a, it was an internal taxation that allowed it to be easier for us to shift the resources and then change our business. I think if you go out on a sort of global level, that's all the carbon tax is. But we do believe it's really important that any form of tax, whether it's a plastics tax or a water tax or a carbon tax, it's very important that the revenue that's generated from it is used to actually take the carbon out and invest back in. What it can't be is just something that's done in order to plug a budgetary gap and spend the money on something else because it's about, you know, this is all about making real substantive physical change, yeah? So switching gears for a minute, one question I've got is, so nuclear versus renewables or recycling versus composting or this type of alternative protein versus that type of alternative, or, you know, lab-grown versus plant-based or things like that, they're, the right answer isn't always clear and it might depend on what criteria you're using to assess. So how does Unilever go about weighing those trade-offs and making those decisions as you look across the different lines of business? Is it delegated and empowered at the business unit level or in the geography level? Or is it, you know, decided at the top and standardized across, especially given that the geopolitical landscape and the, you know, the different hot buttons and allergies and such might differ from country to country and region and region. And you guys are truly global. 
It's a great question. It's evolved over time. Let, let me just share with you how this sort of dominant access of Unilever's organization, you know, like we're in 190 countries, we've got three divisions, around about 14 product categories underneath those divisions, you know, spanning from really high end luxury beauty all the way to world's biggest ice cream company. So it's pretty diverse group of product categories. The to the dominant access in Unilever is the local marketplace. Always has been, you know, we, it's the history of the company. We've got a very strong business in India, very strong business in Brazil, very strong business in Argentina, Indonesia, the US. You know, they, they are strong local businesses, but they're very consistent businesses. And we're a company that shares a very tight culture and philosophy across all of the all of the companies. So the look and feel of Unilever is pretty consistent, even though there's massive diversity in it. You can tell you're in a Unilever business. And I don't know how we created that, to be honest, Jason. It happened through osmosis over 90 years. But And it may be a little bit the way we think about it as a sustainable business means that we attract like-minded talent. And I know we attract the best talent for that because we're the number one employer of choice in like 56 markets where we can measure it. So we've got access to great talent and they come in because of how we are with our purpose and how we think about sustainable business. And they also want to come in, I hope, because they want to have a really successful business and make a lot of money. I mean, that, you know, that will be well remunerated, put it that way. That's all part and parcel of it. But the way it happens in terms of fundamental strategy, our strategies are set in our divisions and in our categories and through our brands. So each of our brands finds a purpose and then links off that. I'll give you the best example. Well, let me finish up for a sec. Then there is a sort of functional layer where myself and my colleagues on the executive, you know, we have a lot of talent there that is interested in the subject and expert in the subject. So take our chief supply chain officer, Mark Engel, for example. I mean, he knows a hell of a lot about carbon. A hell of, take Richard Slater, who runs our who runs R&D for us. He knows all about plastics, you know, and hydrocarbon surfactants and laundry detergents. So there's a layer of expertise that's that's quite strong there. But ultimately, it get the choices are made through the brands about what it is they're going to support. But then we have to make sure we've got the platforms in place to allow the brands to anchor off that. So I'll give you a good example. So we made a decision about 18 months ago as a team that we wanted to set up a climate and nature fund and we wanted to put you know, we have a broad goal. It's a billion dollars over 10 years. And it's not 100 million a year. It'll average to 100 million a year, but, you know, a billion over 10 years. And what we're going to do is we're going to reprioritize brand and marketing investment from our brands and take that across and put it in a separate fund. And we will then invest the fund in a number of impact projects around the world, which could be very long-term and might involve match funding and all sorts of other, other good stuff. We've just had the first uh, example. Philanthropic or, or financial investment? A combination of both, I think. I think I think those two worlds will collide to some extent. I mean, we, we spoke earlier when we were getting to know each other a bit about the work that you've been doing as an angel investor. You know, you think about, we've got investors in Unilever like Generation Investment Management, which was set up by you know, David Blood and Al Gore and, and Stuart investors based up in Edinburgh. And they don't see those two things as different, you know. They see that world colliding, that there's some great value creation and investment returns to be had by understanding this space and being a, 
principal ESG investor. So I think there'll be some combination of that going forwards. But there's a billion coming from, from Unilever over 10 years. Now, that's brand and marketing investment in one form, and it will become brand and marketing investment in another form. So let me explain what I mean by that. We've just announced our first investment, which is through the Dove brand. And we're investing eight and a half million to reforest 20,000 hectares of North Sumatra. Now, that's an area that's twice the size of Paris. And we know that when we do that, we should be able to positively impact, I think it's about 16,000 people who work on that particular, you know, in that particular area. So there's a societal impact and there's a climate impact and there's a nature impact around it. But that's, that's an investment made by the Duff brand that they will then communicate to the consumers of Duff in the context of the purpose of Dove. It's a very purposeful brand. I mean, alongside Ben & Jerry's and seventh generation, you know, Dove is up there as one of the most purposeful brands in Unilever. Lifebuoy is another example. But you can see that the axis and driver to answer your question at the, at the start is through the brand. It's through the brand and the category teams. On the ground, we still do a lot of local stuff. I mean, if you look at our plastics commitments, you know, where we say, for example, we're going to, I think it's quite short term. By 2025, we're going to help to collect and process more plastic packaging than we sell. That can only happen if systems are put in place on the ground in the countries where we use a lot of plastic. So in India, in Brazil, in in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Vietnam, etc. And there we there it's much more activities that are led by our local businesses on the ground to put those things together. A great example of that is what we do around water sustaining the water table in India, where our business in India does tons of that. So it's a combination of both, but the main strategic lens is through the lens of the brands and the brand's purpose. Uh-huh. I know we're running out of time here. Gosh, I feel like I could, I got two more hours worth of questions at least, but, but one, one question I've got is just at the business unit level, is there a sustainability team that's dedicated that's then kind of trying to infuse that across the business? Or is it really done more by by infusing that directly in the business unit owners and, and their teams? Is it separate and distinct or how does that work? And, and I guess what advice would you have for other companies that are trying to figure out how to infuse similar that might not be as fortunate as you or as far along culturally? Well, I think you've got to, it depends on the, on the sort of culture and organization of your business, you know whether you have a global team or whether you fragment it out. But at the highest level, we believe this is such an integrated part of our strategy and it's completely integrated with our business strategy. The, the responsibility for it, you know, sits with the chief executive and his executive team. So there's a group of, you know, 11 of us and, and we run the company and, and it sits with us. Now, we do have a sustainability function. We have a chief sustainability officer in the business, Rebecca. And we have various subject matter experts, like we have a chap that I do a lot of work with and I have huge regard for. I've learned, learned so much from this guy, Thomas Lingard, who really was the author of the Climate Transition Action Plan. But, you know, if you want to try and understand carbon and you know how complex carbon is and how complex carbon modeling is and scenario analysis and pathways, etc., you kind of, I mean, we're lucky we can have resources like that, but we've got a very few, very deep experts in the business. And that's important because they're able to think about strategy. They're able to help the brands, the categories and the geographies. And they're able to do advocacy as well. And they're able to help how the executive team, Alan, myself, think about advocacy and what's good advocacy and bad advocacy, et cetera. So that, that's an important resource for us. But thereafter, there's a couple of things that we did that were very important. Our sustainability team and our communications team are one and the same. 
So functionally, we brought sustainability and communications together because they're so integral to the business that any communication from Unilever should be seen through the lens of our strategy and sustainability. Another change we've just made is I've just taken one of my team, I mean, Lizanne, she was the financial controller of Unilever for many years. I mean, absolutely brilliant finance professional. Oh, another question I have, Graham, just selfishly, is that as as you know from our chit chat before we got to recording, you know, we work with a number of early stage startups that are innovating in in different areas. So, how much is Unilever building in house versus working with outside partners, and and that could be anything from carbon accounting to carbon marketplaces for offsets to you know decarbonizing different aspects of the supply chain to synthetic palm oil to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How much do you work with these smaller companies that are innovating in these niche but important areas? And, and as one of those companies, what's the best way to get on Unilever's radar? The shift has been a lot to working with external partners of all sizes. Size doesn't really matter in this space because it's, it's so innovative. That, you know, it's about ideas, philosophy of ideas, etc. It's kind of interesting. You know, we were one of the first corporate venture, or not one of the first corporate ventures, but we were pretty early into it. I think we got into corporate venturing back in, I remember rightly, it was probably like 2004, something like that. So, you know, we've been at it for nearly 20 years. And, you know, we've had quite a lot of success with that. Not financially, you know, I mean, we've we've made a return on it, but it's... You know, it's covered its cost of capital and a little bit more. But what it's done is provide tremendous insight on what's happening in the world. And, you know, there's many lessons that we learned from venturing, you know, working with more innovative, faster, smaller companies to do that. We do a lot of incubation around our brands. We've got an incubator and an excubator in China. You know, in many ways, our business has moved from do it all yourself end to end and not just in the space of carbon or sustainability, our whole business has shifted to much more third-party partnership models. If I think about R&D, you know, we used to do lots and lots of empirical science. We now have partnerships with leading learning institutions and biotech companies and biotech startups, etc. So, And it's quite difficult culturally, actually, for a business like Unilever because, you know, similar to a Nestle or a Procter, we, we're so big, we have our own gravity, you know, and our, and our own culture is so strong. We kind of have this philosophy of, you know, we can do it all ourselves. And we've sort of weaned ourselves off that over the last 10 years or so to, to become better at partnering. And I don't think we're often an easy partner, by the way, because I think, you know, we can be a bit know-it-all and maybe a little bit arrogant and whatnot. So beg forgiveness from anybody that's had a tough time partnering or accessing Unilever, but we're trying to change, you know. But it's really, really important. The partnerships we have with our suppliers, for example, are so important, whether it's a responsible sourcing policy or responsible agricultural policy. We talked earlier about what we're going to do with Scope 3 in our supply chain. So obviously that partnership has to be really deep because, you know, we need to influence people to make the changes that are going to impact our, our scope three. So um, tons and tons of it going on. Best way to get to us is just to come to us when we are, at the end of the day, a, a very open company and always listening. So nobody's going to, no one's going to say, well, what the hell, you know, we're too busy or anything. How could that be? I mean, you're the global CFO and you're on this little climate podcast, so you can't be too busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We make, we make I'm just, time, I'm we just make, joking. We make time, we make time for things we enjoy. <laughs> so a more tactical question, but so I get doing better by doing good as a long view, but tactically there's going to be situations that come up all the time where you, where you have to make a choice because the 
most cost-effective thing today might not be the thing that is doing good the best. So when those trade-offs come up, how do you think about those and, and where do you come out? And one reason I ask is that there's a lot of companies out there without the same conscience that you're describing here on the show. And again and again and again, they're just going to go the cheapest every single time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, but th those trade-offs are pretty normal trade-offs, whether you're in the space of sustainability or whether you're just in the space of business strategy and budget management and capital allocation and all the, all the fun stuff of running a company. It's not different. It's just sometimes the... Sometimes the data set's a little bit more vague and sometimes the timelines are a little bit longer and there's a bit more uncertainty, but it's exactly the same. It's a bit like, you know, how you talk about climate risk and climate opportunity. Climate risk is just a business risk. That's the best way to think about it. It's just a little bit longer term and you need to run scenarios because what might happen in your business is not what you're normally used to thinking about. But it's just a risk like, like any other risk. I don't want to tell you it's seamless, though. It's not seamless. All, all I can say is, it's the same everywhere. I mean, one of the things I did this week, there's a CFO group being formed by the UN Global Compact. And we've got that up now to over 60 CFOs of some of the world's biggest companies, very diverse group of companies, but it's super international. And it's a great network. I mean, CFOs love connecting with other CFOs because we all do the same difficult job and we like complaining to each other and we actually tap each other up for advice a lot. It's a bit like goalkeepers and footballers, a sort of CFO's union, you know, and we all talk to each other. But we're all committed to this. I mean, there is unanimity of thought and principle. Not everybody agrees on every subject, but directionally we're all there. So I think we've crossed that Rubicon now. I don't think, I mean, it's an, it would be an extreme view to say, I'm not interested in any of that. I just want to make as much short-term money as possible in as short a time frame as possible. If you're thinking that way, you're not going to create maximum value creation over the long term. And value creation is a long-term thing. It's, I'm in a business where it's a compounding model. We own brands that are irreplaceable. They're stores of value and inflation protection. We can generate a lot of incremental free cash flow every single year. We can fuel it back in our business. It's a self-sustaining model, and that's where value creation comes from. That is a model that investors want, in my experience, because you know, unless they're on the extremely flashy side of investment and very short-term and very hedgy and very, you know, sort of, and you know, there are lots of people like that because money can move around very, very quickly. But the type of investment that most of the market represents, which is money from endowments, pensioners, you know, local authorities, it's our money, it's everyone's money, right? That wall of money is looking for long-term return and long-term outperformance. And so just matching up that body of long-term capital with companies that are thinking about the long-term, but also delivering consistently, that's the perfect match that you're looking for. Now, you talked before about what a big role the consumers play in that overall extended footprint of the company. So in my mind, there's a chicken and egg question, right? Because on the one hand, you need to adapt to the changing consumer sentiment. But on the other hand, you're Unilever. Like you swing a big bat, you can potentially help drive consumer sentiment. So how do you think about consumer behavior change? Is that something that you would adapt to as it evolves or do you help steer that in any way? And is that part of your job? We do help steer it. I mean, the, the way we think about, I mean, we're a business that relies on innovation, right? I mean, we own these incredible brands. I say you own them. It's funny. I mean, the way you think about them when, when you work in a company like this is you're actually the temporary custodian for a period of time and you're trying to leave the brand a little bit better 
than it was when you found it. You know, I mean, these brands are going to outlive all of us. And you're trying to, you're just trying to improve them marginally. The people I've always thought it's a bit of a, maybe this isn't right. I'm not a marketeer, but you know, I try to be. The people who really own brands are the consumers of the brand. And the job of a brand manager is to take what that consumer wants and reflect it in the brand and be able to synthesize what that body of consumers is going, how they're thinking. So, you know, they're thinking about authenticity of businesses. They're thinking about the role of business in society. They're thinking, is this a good company that I trust or is it a company I don't trust? I mean, that's becoming a much more fundamental question in the eyes of consumers. And the ability to interpret that and reflect and communicate through the brand is really, really important. When it comes to innovation, there's a combination of pull, but also a lot of push. I mean, some of the work that we do on concentration, for example, within our household cleaning business, you know, we've got, you know, products like Cif Eco Refill, where rather than dilute the product and have all the carbon footprint on all the packaging of shipping a product to a store or on Amazon or on Tesco.com, Walmart.com, you name it, why don't we just send the concentrated product in a really cool pack, in a little shop pack, in a way that can go through your letterbox with three of them in a bit of sustainable packaging and can be delivered direct to you. We'll also allow you to buy a really, really cool bottle that you can use umpteen times so you're not throwing the plastic away. And it's a really engaging experience where you basically fill the water at the tap up to a certain level, squeeze, click, the thing dilutes, and boom, you've made part of it yourself. That's a win-win-win because it's lower plastic, lower packaging, lower carbon footprint from not having to ship all the heavy water. The consumer loves it because it's very engaging and it's a great quality product and they know that it's a, it's a more eco-friendly product and it's also cheaper. And so, you know, we give some of the benefit of the cheapness to the consumer, make it a, a price competitive product, and we maybe make a little bit more margin. So you can, you can find these sort of sweet spots of sort of triple wins here. You can also get it wrong. I mean, we've done lots and lots of stuff that hasn't worked out so well. I mean, one of the ones we're doing at the moment that might be successful, might not be successful, but with our big deodorants business in the US, which is mostly some of it's aerosol, but a lot of it is stick with Degreed and with Dove. We're using a really high-end, beautiful, reusable DeoStick provider. So we'll supply you with the refill for it, but you've got this really cool-looking product. Will that appeal to all consumers? Probably not. Will it appeal to some, and will it be able to be a viable business? We shall see. But that, that's the sort of thing where we, we are innovating with sustainability as a critical driver of the innovation because we know it's attractive to consumers. I'm going to sneak in two quick final questions here. I know we're, we're way over, so thank you for that. One is that you mentioned that Unilever is trying to take a much more external and collaborative approach. I mean, I can't ask you about all of Unilever since the footprint's too big, but what are the biggest things that you're hoping that somebody outside is working on that would solve pain points that you, Graham, face within Unilever? Anything jump to mind that's just like a nagging thing that you wish someone were addressing? Yeah, so what jumps into my head is some sort of biodegradable recyclable multi-laminate plastic for, for sachets, for shampoo. Lots of work's going on in that space. And that would be absolutely fantastic. And the second thing is how to, at scale, get value into circular recovery systems for plastic packaging. Because plastic is not a bad thing per se. It's extremely useful. I mean, geez, we've just been through 15 months of a pandemic where plastic has been a big part of saving people's lives, you know? But there's a huge litter problem with plastic. So we've got enough plastic, we just need to find out how to make it go around the system. 
hundreds and hundreds of times and, and have less virgin plastic. So there are two areas that jumped in. I mean, God, I could give you umpteen, umpteen others, but there, there are a couple of big silver bullet solutions for us. Uh-huh. And if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate both Unilever's transition, but also just the transition in general, what would you change and how would you change it? I think something along the lines of carbon pricing or responsible carbon taxation. I think that's the thing that's needed in order to put a cost on everything and really highlight the differences that exist today and the real risks and real opportunities that exist in certain companies, but then use that within the global system to achieve really systematic change. I mean, in many ways, my magic won't happen because the U.S. rejoined the commitments of Paris. You know, that was a... At least was for dark. the next few years, right? Yeah. For the next few years. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what yeah, happens in 2024. I know, I know. That's, this is the thing. I guess when I think about it, we've got to get the world working together again on this. Because if we don't, you know, we're really going to be held accountable for it as a generation. And I'm, I'm an optimist. I mean, I do. I believe in the power of technology and science. And I believe in the power of youth. And I believe that our kids will solve this problem. I just don't want to be sitting there in, in a deck chair sort of embarrassed because we weren't able to do it. You know, and they had to solve it. That's the thing. I mean, you know, you know I think they'll be the ones who have to ultimately solve it anyway. But I just don't want us to be sitting there going, it was too difficult, you know. Well, this was such a wide-ranging discussion. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? No, you've, I mean, you've covered it. I mean, I'm really amazed with your interest in the kind of the sort of detail of how Unilever is as a personality and what we find difficult and what's easier for us. I guess I always get surprised when people don't ask, you know, what happens if you fail? Oh, I had a lot of questions I didn't get to ask, Graham, but we're already <laughs> 20 minutes over, so... <laughs> <laughs> the experience we've had, and maybe I'll leave this a part and shot because it's, it's encouraging, I think, to a lot of other, other companies. Honestly, when I first got started on this, I was fearful with the commitments we've made because it was obvious that we weren't going to meet all of them. And, you know, as a financial person, if you don't meet your targets, the market punishes you. But I've been amazed the extent to which setting stretching goals, meeting some of them, half meeting others and failing in others, People are very accepting of that, provided you're transparent and, and in communicating it. And they believe that you continue to challenge yourself to do the right thing. And that's quite different to the norm in running companies when you don't tend to want to publish failure or bad news. And, and I think there's a big change there. Huh. Well, I can't tell you how inspiring it is to hear about all the efforts that Unilever's doing. And I also just can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on my little show. So Pleasure. Uh, thanks again, Graham, and best of luck to you and the whole Unilever team. And hopefully this is the beginning of an ongoing dialogue as well. Thanks a lot, Jason. I'll, I'll leave you to get off and have some Ben and Jerry's. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.